In this episode of 92i Talks, Wharton psychologist Adam Grant and his wife, Allison Sweet Grant, a psychiatric nurse practitioner, sit down with Susan Kane to discuss their new book, The Gift Inside the Box. They share what they've learned from psychology evidence and personal experience about how we can care for others and ourselves, teach that value to kids, and prepare them to lead lives of meaning. The conversation was recorded on October 1st, 2019, in front of a live audience at New York's 92nd Street Y. Hi, everybody. So great to be here with all of you. And I have to say, this is an extra special treat for me because everything that you have heard or um, read from Adam Grant on the subject of generosity is something that I have been living personally since the time Adam was 23 years old. And I was first researching quiet. Um, I was into my first year of research. And a mutual friend of ours named Brian Little, a great personality psychologist, said, there's this guy that you have to talk to. He's a grad student at the University of Michigan. And he is the type of person who can make things happen 47 minutes before they are scheduled to begin. <laughs> and, uh, and I called up Adam, and I came to see him at his office. And you know, he was a grad student. He definitely had better things to be doing, I promise you. But we spent four hours with Adam just telling me everything that he knew that could be helpful for this quirky, crazy book that I was researching at the time. Um, and he continued that way throughout the entire process of writing the book, which lasted seven years. He was just always so incredibly generous. And through all that time, I have been hearing about Allison, and we have been wanting to meet each other. And it did not happen until 25 minutes ago <laughs> in the green room. And I was so excited to meet Allison that, that a, 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 a lovely brunette came into the green room, and I threw my arms around her, <laughs> thinking that it was Allison, but it was actually, <laughs> it was actually another lovely brunette. Um, but, <laughs> but now we have gotten to meet, and, yes. um, and it's great. So thank you for being here. Thank you. I do feel like this is the perfect place for the two of you to meet, though, because where better for three introverts than to be on a stage <laughs> interacting? I, I thought that when the two of you met, you would just sit there silently, not talking. But I guess we don't have that option tonight. No, we actually had a lot in common about all the different kinds of jitters that we experienced before going on a stage. Which so I think we so should share publicly. <laughs> OK, so let's, let's get started. And um, we are here tonight to talk about the wonderful book that you have written. And maybe Maybe I'll just start by asking you why this book. So I think the, the starting point for, for me was Give and Take came out about six and a half years ago. And people kept asking, how do I teach the values of generosity at home? I was like, yeah. I don't know. I study work. I don't, right. I don't know anything about parenting. I just always wanted to be one of those psychologists who doesn't screw up our kids. And so uh, I've just tried to avoid you know, over-applying everything that I knew. And the question kept coming and kept coming. And uh, Allison actually commented one day that she had an idea for a children's book. And I said, oh, maybe, maybe we should write one together. And I came up with maybe three or four ideas for what a book on generosity would be like. She said, no, none of those are original. And then a few weeks later, we were on a road trip with our kids. And uh, they were, I think, playing games in the back of the car. And she said, I have an idea. This is true. <laughs> Um, we were on a road trip. We had dropped our daughters off at camp um, for like a camp trial, and we were on the way home, and um, we came up with this 
idea about a gift that was in search of a giver. Right. Um, and it kind of unfolded very, very quickly. And we ended up writing pretty much the whole book, at least the whole first draft, I would say, um, in, in the car on the way home with our Seven kids. years, Wait, seven minutes. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I just want to stop right there. You wrote the entire book in the car. On a car trip. Yes, with wow. our children in the back seat. Wow, so one of you was driving and one of you was scribbling down notes. Is that what it looked like? Um, Adam was driving and mm -hmm. I was taking notes on my phone and um, it was pretty much done very quickly. Oh I mean, it's only like 100 words though, yeah. so. It's, <laughs> it, it, sort of, it sort of ruins book writing for adults. Like, wait, that, why, why does this take so long? But. It's only 100 words, but those words are really clever and they have a lot of double meanings to the words. So it's one of those children's books where the adults can find extra levels of it to take delight in that, that the children might not see, but the children are just loving it for the story. So like, how did that happen while you're on... I-95. Right. <laughs> uh, well, we had the idea for the, the gift, and then Adam and I have done some writing together before, and we like to be funny, <clears throat> or we like to try to be funny, at least, <laughs> when we write. And so once we had the first pun, then they just kind of it all followed after, and, and it all came together. Um, but yeah, we like to add humor when possible. <laughs> That's funny because, yeah. you know, this is, I had forgotten about this, but even though we hadn't met in person before, I don't even know when it was, but I know there was some time that the three of us were on the phone. And I remember, or maybe I heard the two of you talking in a recording, I don't know, something. But the kind of patter that the two of you had between each other, I remember thinking you were like the, the Catherine Hepburn and um, Spencer Tracy of the world of psychologists. <laughs> <laughs> like there was this way that you were... Yeah. What does that mean? Like, <laughs> you were like... I know, I, I've heard of them, but go on. Like, you had this kind of snappy banter with each other where you were teasing each other in this affectionate way, and it was understood that that was the dynamic of your relationship, but, and no one was going to take offense. Oh. Was it... Is I, that, it might have been the podcast, maybe? Oh, yeah. yeah. That's what it was. Yeah. Um, I, he's it's just mostly just really Allison making fun of me. make fun of, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> That's pretty much it. <laughs> so for um, those in the audience who haven't had a chance yet to read the book or to give it to their children, um, can you just describe kind of the basic premise of the book? Thank you. Want to take it? Go for it. Uh, well, basically, um, it is a, um, a gift box, a box that magically appears yeah. um, and is searching for its rightful owner, right. for um, somebody to gift him. And uh, along the way, the box um, meets up with many children who um, are very curious about what might be inside and if what's inside belongs to them. Uh, but the box is not satisfied and continues to search until he finds the right person. And that's pretty much the plot, I would say. Allison had this idea that I thought was really clever, which is um, we, we live in this world where packages just magically appear on your right. porch, right? Yeah. And you're like, how did this get here? Right. And then it came with your name on it, and it's exactly the thing you wanted. And our kids had never gone through the process of placing an Amazon order. And so I think they just thought the packages dropped out of the sky, and <laughs> here they are. And so Two days it, later. Yeah, right. and so it would, right. be, it would be natural then to, to have a bunch of kids who maybe were a little bit entitled and felt like, oh, of course, this is the thing that I've been waiting for. Right. And then as we talked about it, we thought it would be great if, um, if on the conclusion, 
the discovery was that there was actually a kid who wanted to gift the box to someone else. Yeah, um, yeah. And so the box jumps into her arms and says, oh, you know, basically you're the giver I've been looking for. Yeah. And then the, the closing question is to, for the parent to ask the child, um, is there somebody that you would want to give this gift to? Right, right. Yeah, and it was really touching. And I will tell you, you know that um, kids don't lie. So I, I uh, gave the book to my two sons who are ages 9 and 11, which is older than the target age um, for this book. But both of them told me that they loved it. Like they each independently said, this is great. Um, and it was interesting because one of them at the time was in the process of every hour going to the door to look for the origami <laughs> set that he had ordered. And he couldn't wait to find it. And yet he... He took no offense at, um, at um, being identified with those kids in the book, and he thought it was great. <laughs> so, um, so let's talk about generosity and why, why did you see this as such an important subject to bring to the world of children? I mean, I know you were getting that question a lot from people, but why did you see it as important? For me, I think... It's, it's a value that I think is really important, but it's one that's, that's often difficult to teach. Um, there's, I've been reading evidence for years that when parents preach generosity, it sometimes yeah. backfires, and, yeah. and kids kind of have this, well, you can't tell me what to do attitude. And I also think we live in a world where it's incredibly easy for achievement symbols to become sort of dominant, right? So w when our kids started school, we would find ourselves asking them, well, you know, did your team win today? And how did the test go? And everything was about what did you accomplish and did you succeed? Not that that's not important, right? We certainly, I think, value hard work and, and some degree of, of achievement, but it was sort of crowding out consideration of how do you treat others? And so we, we tried some ways of dealing with that at home and we thought, okay, maybe, maybe there's a way to try to capture this in a book, but um, there's actually a routine we do at our dinner table once a week, which I think has helped a lot. Elsie, we want to talk about it? Yeah, uh, so when, when we sit down as a family for dinner, as Adam mentioned, our, our questions usually tend to be, how was school, how did the test go, things like that. But we started asking our kids, um, who did you help today? Hmm. And who helped you today? Uh -huh. And in a way to get them to focus on being generous, being kind at school, being helpful. And at first, we got a lot of I forgot, <laughs> you know, yeah. or I don't know, mom. <laughs> um, but after a while, we noticed that they started having more thoughtful answers and that they'd actually look for ways, seek out ways to be more generous and helpful, um, both in school and at home, and then um, talk about them. And so uh, that's been a great experience for us. And I was, I was excited about just the, the who did you help question because I wanted them to think about, okay, who might be in need and what could they offer, what could they share. Right. Allison added this question of who helped you. And at first I thought, okay, you know, you're, you're just, that's a gratitude question. What I didn't realize until we saw it play out and then Allison explained it to me was it's actually a way of, of helping our kids think about who are the classmates who are kind and caring mm -hmm. as opposed to just gravitating toward, you know, the best athlete or the most popular kid in school. Um, and I thought that was a really smart way of, of getting them to, to think about for a moment, okay, how do the other kids around here actually treat me? So were there any stories that they shared at the dinner table that were especially meaningful, either of kids who had helped them or kids they had helped? Well, we hear a lot of, I, saw, I helped um, somebody who, uh, I helped somebody who may have gotten a question on an exam or a quiz yeah. wrong. Um, 
sometimes we are with our youngest child, we get, I shared a snack with somebody who forgot to bring theirs. Right. Um, one, of, one of my favorites was uh, one of our daughters had mentioned that she volunteered to participate in a video that was being done for school. And we're like, okay, that's, that's a really kind thing to do. And then a few months later, we saw the video, and it was a little video about honesty. And each kid was, it was, I think, first or second graders. They were being asked to define what honesty was. And so it's a montage, and one kid says, telling the truth. And another kid says, not lying. And then our daughter says, honesty is when you're asked if you brush your teeth before bed, not saying yes when you really didn't. <laughs> like, hmm, I wonder where this example came from. Uh, but we, we still tried to applaud the generosity that was shown by participating in the video, even though we had some questions about integrity afterward. <laughs> so it's interesting that you said um, you wanted to model it and not preach about it, because um, before I came here tonight, we actually had a gaggle of kids at our house today, like, including my own, and I asked all of them, so what, what do you think is the right way to teach generosity, and these were you know, sort of tween age kids. Um, and every single one of them said exactly what you just said. They didn't use the word modeling, and they didn't use the word preach, but they were like, don't, you know, don't, the, the adults shouldn't wave their finger at the kids and tell them, this is what you should do, this is what you shouldn't do. They said they should show it, and they should show examples of ways in which, of someone who's not being kind and generous, and ways in, of someone who is, and the kids will be able to tell the difference and want to be like, like the other kids. Um, yeah, and then after that, I read that there are actually studies that I think you've talked about in your work um, about how preaching really doesn't work and modeling is the only way to do it. Um, yeah, I think, I mean, I think everyone here, and you've all had the experience, right, of, of trying to tell your kids to do something or being told to do something and then having the instinct to do the exact opposite. Yeah. Um, I think the, you know, in general, we don't like to have our behavior controlled, right? So we respond to threats to freedom by saying, wait a minute, no, I'm in charge here, and you can't tell me what to do. And so I think the, the modeling idea is to say, wait a minute, if this is a behavior that somebody I respect or look up to thinks is worth their time, or sees it important, that prompts me maybe to think about reasons why that might matter to me, mm -hmm. right? And so then I, t I come up with my own reasons, I'm more likely then to feel ownership over them and, and choose them. And so um, actually when our kids were little, Allison had a great way of starting to do this with, uh, with holiday gifts. Yes. Go for it. <laughs> I mean, I could talk about it, but it was your idea, you should talk about it. Um, well, um, I'm not exactly sure where to start. Um, around the holiday season, um, of course, our kids are very excited about presents, as most kids are. But um, we started having our kids pick out gifts themselves to um, either donate or bring to children's hospitals or shelters um, as a way to get them involved in charity and generosity and giving. And um, it's one of the things that they look forward to most every year. Um, they love not only picking out gifts that they themselves would like, the newest thing, you know, whatever's trendy, um, but they really like putting themselves in the shoes of the children who are going to receive the gifts, you know, depending on where we're sending them to. Do you have any other? No, I think the, the perspective-taking part of that is, is really interesting. There was, um, there, I read some developmental psychology research a while back about how if you take kids who are about a year old and you give them uh, something that's not that good, like a, a pretty bland cracker, uh, and then you give them some chocolate, and then they watch an adult taste both of them, and the adult says yum to the cracker, not the chocolate, 
they still give the adult the chocolate. Uh-huh. They, yeah. they can't imagine that the grown-up would like a food that they don't. Right. Um, but often by the time they turn two or two and a half, uh, they develop the ability to travel outside of their own shoes and say, hey, wait a minute. Um, even though I like the chocolate, maybe the cracker is more delicious to you. And also, that means I get more chocolate. And so you can have the cracker. Um, and so I, I like the idea of saying, look, we could be a little more thoughtful about this as parents and, and actually get our kids to think about, well, what might kids in different situations from yours want? Right, um, right. And what might be gifts that you might take for granted or that you might not even think about as gifts yeah. um, you know, that, are, that are worth giving? So. Yeah. You know, there was um, one example of modeling that I saw in our family that actually stretches back, I guess you'd say it's three generations. So my husband used to play ice hockey, um, and his dad came to all the games, and he said that whenever one of the kids on his team would get hurt, his dad would always come out to help that kid, and he would would always bring a mirror with him. um, So that he could show the child who was hurt that actually their face wasn't as bruised as they thought it was, because usually the kid thinks it's much worse um, than it actually is. And, and, they ne- and, and my husband and his father never actually talked about this action that his father was taking, but my husband watched it all through his childhood. And now he does the same thing when, at my kids' soccer games. And we're starting to see... And, and, and my husband and my kids have never actually talked about it, but we're starting to see our kids doing similar things with the kids on their team, and it's all happening in this completely unstated way. Um, and that's I think, amazing. Yeah, and I, 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 but I think that's kind of the way humans are, right? Like, we're always watching everything around us and taking it in um, in ways we're not aware of. Um, so, yeah, that was just one example of modeling I had thought about. I feel like every time you talk about your family, I, I feel a lot of envy that we don't have any traditions <laughs> in the family that I came from, right? That you, you have these generations of experiences and memories that you're able to share. What? Well, Why don't we have any of those. But the funny thing is, I would ne- if you had asked me this morning, um, what traditions do you have? I would never actually have thought of this one, though I knew it took place, but I never really thought about it as a tradition. But as I was thinking about different ideas for tonight, um, I was talking with my husband about it, and he was musing over that one, and I thought, oh, okay. Um, so it's not like it has to be this big, grand, formal tradition. It's more like this is an action that actually goes unnoticed most of the time, mm-hmm. and yet has an impact. And I think probably all of us have you know, so many of those different actions mm-hmm. that we're not always aware of. Um, okay, wait, so I wanna switch gears for a minute, though I do wanna come back to the research, um, but. Today, I think it was today, you came out with a piece in the New York Times about the giving tree. And I can't really see all of you, but let me ask this question. Is there anyone, I can sort of see you, is there anyone in the audience who has not read the Shel Silverstein book, The Giving Tree? I think no one. I think you've all read it. Okay, that's good. Um, So can you talk a little bit about your take on The Giving Tree and what you said in this article? Yeah, so I, I've had a love-hate relationship with the Giving Tree for a while. Yeah. Um, I, I remembered it really fondly from, from childhood, right? I remembered it being moving and poignant. And when we went to read it to our kids, it was pretty depressing. Mm-hmm. Okay, so the, the tree is basically a sucker. And the kid is a huge taker. 
and the tree ends up reduced to a stump, and the boy is all alone, and the, they're both pretty miserable. Yeah. Um, and, and then, but the boy was happy, and the tree was happy? Like, whoa, whoa, this is not a world where I would be happy. Um, so I felt, like, I felt like it was a really beautiful story, yeah. but that it was teaching us the wrong lessons uh, in that it was, it was basically modeling a, an abusive relationship, right? That the, <laughs> the, the boy keeps taking, and the tree just keeps giving. And I think at some point, the boundary should be set and the tree should say no more. Uh, I think it was also interesting to me that, you know, some people will say, well, it's supposed to be kind of a parent-child relationship, but that's not supposed to be a one-way street, right? right? It, it's not like parents should be dependent on their children, um, but parents should actually give children responsibility for contributing as well. Right. And so I guess I came away from reading the book really worried that our kids were going to get the wrong lesson from it. And so um, Allison and I had been talking about this on and off, and so we decided to sit down and write this article to explain how we think this book should be read to, to not teach the wrong message. Yeah. Yeah, I'm curious, because backstage you were saying that the two of you have a slightly different take about the book. Is that right? Well, I think it's a beautiful book, and it's simple, but I deep. think it's beautiful, it's too, just for the record. Right. I just think the story is a little bit ugly, but, you know... <laughs> Well, it depends how you look at it. And, and the point is that it is a classic, and it's a wonderful book to read to your, to your kids, to anybody. Um, but you have to understand the underlying message, which is that this is not a healthy relationship. Right. And um, it's cautionary. And that's sort of what we wanted to talk about um, in our piece that came out today. Susan, how did yeah. you feel about it? No, I'm so glad that you did that because... So I must have read that book like 80 times when I was a kid. Mm -hmm. I, I read it over and over. Sign it, that you're going to become an author one day. <laughs> yeah, yeah, that's probably true. But you know, it's like this, it's physically beautiful and the, the, the prose is very lyrical and this compelling story. So anyway, I read it over and over and I, I actually distinctly remember reading it kind of in this dutiful frame of mind thinking, oh, this is what I will try to be like one day, you know, like I'll try to be like this tree that's endlessly giving. You know, it, it is a very gendered book, right? And it's basically, like you can, I think I read it explicitly as a model of what a mother is supposed to do. Um, and I thought, okay, one day I'll get to the point where I won't mind cutting off my branches and, you know, going down to a stump for the love of this boy. I understand uh, you so, so much better now, <laughs> having heard that. Yeah, yeah. And, um, and so after I read your piece today, I started reading a little bit more about Shel Silverstein and, um, and about his editor who brought this book into being. And she says she regrets having brought the book alive. Maybe this was in your piece. I can't remember which is which now. Um, because she feels like it's leading kids astray. So I think if kids are taught to view it as a cautionary tale, um, that's great. But otherwise, it's it's... Very tricky. <laughs> well, that's interesting because I never, I don't remember ever reading it with a mother's perspective, at least when I was a, a child thinking yeah. I will be this kind of mother one day that right. gives all my apples. And Neither I did think, I, by yeah. the way, for the record. <laughs> yeah, yeah. But I think did it's you read a, it as a kid? Yeah. Okay. Yeah, but the mother part didn't, didn't right. click right. for me. It didn't click yeah. for me either, but I, I think from a, a child's point of view, Children are going to resonate most with the boy, I think, I think, in that book. At least I did as a child, thinking that um, this is wonderful. Right here's this tree all these, all this that bounty. wants to give me everything. <laughs> yeah. Right. And, and when you see it that way, from the child's perspective, it, it feels like a beautiful book. 
But oh, if you, right, but when a parent now, like yeah. when I sit down with my children now and read it, I think it's important to um, bring light to the fact that this isn't a healthy relationship and right. that yeah. there are things um, beyond, you know, what's written on the pages. Yeah, yeah. And it, it would have been so easy to, to land it in that place, right? So I think especially given what a gifted writer Shel Silverstein was yeah. and how poignant the story is with the passage of time, it would have been so easy to end it by finally the boy realizing that what he should be doing is replenishing the tree and taking the seeds from the apples and planting them to grow a forest so the tree wouldn't be alone. Yeah. Right? Yeah. Like, how hard is it to think of that? And so I was all the more disappointed. <laughs> I mean, no, no, but that, that's what you would do, right? You would obviously, if you're going to take the apples and the branches, you would at least make sure the seeds went. It's not like you can even do anything with the seeds other than plant them. So I what did the boy do? Did he throw away the from. seeds? <laughs> I, I was reading about him today, and there was a thing where he said um, that he felt that all the children's stories that ended with happily ever after, to his mind, were selling children a bill of goods because they, they weren't necessarily having happy lives, and they would be reading these books and saying, wait, why am where's my happiness? I'm not seeing the happiness that's depicted on the page. I wonder then if Disney took that message to heart because we've been trying to figure out for a long time why the parents die at the beginning of every Disney movie. And oh. so we can, I guess we oh, can Oh, well, blame. that's a whole topic. Yeah. <laughs> but, oh yeah, there's so much to say about that. <laughs> um, but yeah, I mean, that's, that's such a long tradition in literature that like, the children can't really fully come alive until, until they're asked to step into that role. So how do you feel um, about these, this happy ending bias, though? I don't know. I, I was really thinking about it after that because... So I've noticed with my kids, for example, that if there's something that's upsetting them, like, um, gosh, there was one time a couple years ago, we went on this vacation, and, um, and we were staying... We had rented a house, and next to the house were these two donkeys named Lucky and Norman, and on the first day, the donkeys wouldn't come anywhere near the kids, but you know, gradually it was like this love affair, and when the kids would come to the fence, the donkeys would come cantering over and eat from their palms. And, um, and about two days before we left that house, the kids started to realize that this was gonna come to an end and that never again would they see Lucky and Norman. And they were completely heartbroken by this. I mean, in the way that I think all kids you know, understand what goodbye means in, in a metaphorical way that they haven't fully processed yet. So they were going through that. Um, and nothing would console them until, you know, and we try the kinds of consolations of like, oh, you know, maybe you'll see Lucky and Norman again. There will be a happy ending when we come back next year, maybe, you know. Um, but it, then when I said to them, you know what, this is part of life. Like, endings are part of life, and it does feel really sad, but then you do get past it and that's just kind of how it is. That was what really consoled them because I think that the, the thing that trips kids up is when they think there are not supposed to be any flies at the picnic and they're like, why are all these flies here? Um, but if you tell them, no, that's part of it, there's, there's you know, less to wring your hands about. So I don't know what that means about how we should be writing children's books, but it feels like <laughs> part of the suit. Neither do we. <laughs> I, I think the main thing is, if you read them at bedtime, it's better if they're not extremely depressing. <laughs> <laughs> or, or worse yet, terrifying. But yeah. Otherwise, I, I could be persuaded. You loved Harry Potter, though, right? And Harry Potter is full of all kinds of things. Yeah, that's true. We're reading it, actually, right now to our girls. Yeah, yeah it, doesn't, it doesn't seem to terrify them, though. 
I don't know why. Well, we're still at the beginning. <laughs> That's true. <laughs> book, book one. What, what book are you much, up to? Much less scary. Book one. Yeah. Book one. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Oh, I'm very jealous of that. I went through that two years ago. And I told you it was the first time I had actually ever read Harry Potter at that point oh. because, you know, I had not been a kid when they came out. Um, okay. Some of us it, read it anyway when our younger siblings <laughs> told, told us to. But. No, no, no. I read it with my kids for the first time. Um, oh, they actually read it on their own when they were younger, and then now they've shown an interest in wanting to read it out loud together. So oh, we've come back nice. to it. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And are you listening to the Audible book version also with them? No, no. They've seen a few of the movies, um, and then we stopped when it started to get scary. Okay, okay. Um, so we'll so see how that whole get. theme again. Yeah. Um, okay, so what about um, some of the other research on generosity? There was something I saw, I think it was in an essay that you had written about um, a study finding that kids are more likely to become generous when they see it as an aspect of their character as opposed to being praised for a specific action they've taken. Can you describe a little more about that? Yeah, so there, there are a series of studies actually which, um, which have shown that when you praise kids for giving, which is what I think most of us do, right? Like, wow, that was so helpful. Um, oh, you know, what a generous thing to do. You're trying to reinforce the behavior. Yeah. Um, that tends not to work as well as if you say, wow, you are so generous. Or, wow, thank you for being a helper as opposed to just for helping. Um, what that seems to do is it helps kids internalize it as part of their identity, right? Mm -hmm. And so then the next time they have an opportunity to do something good, they're more likely to say, oh, this is who I am, and so I should, I should follow through. Right. Um, that seems to work best around when kids are 8 to 10. Uh, so those of you who have older kids, it's way too late. Um, <laughs> no, no, character is just a little more crystallized, so it takes more effort at that point. But there, there's some experimental evidence that even as young as three, uh, that if you invite kids to be a helper as opposed to just help, mm -hmm. you get a 22 to 29% increase in the rate of helping. Wow. Um, that even as toddlers, they want to earn that identity and say, yeah. oh, like I'm the kind of person who would help. Yeah. And so um, I think that sometimes the conversation that we have about growth mindset, about how you're supposed to praise effort, not intelligence, um, leads parents to, to only focus on kids' actions. Um, but you don't want your kid to have a sense of self as just a, a scattered set of behaviors, right? You actually want there to be a core set of values yeah. that they think those behaviors are connected to. And of course that's a problem if they start to say, oh, wow, I am a generous person. And they think they don't have to do anything to earn it. Mm -hmm. uh, but to actually say, okay, look, these are my values and I need to live up to them every day yeah. seems to be a, a powerful thing. Um, Allison, you, don't, you tend not to like the idea of calling our kids givers, though. Why? Um, I don't think I've ever asked you this. And now feels like an appropriate time. <laughs> I think it's just the, um, going back to the terminology, the lingo from, from your book, that it just seems weird <laughs> to, to call our kids givers or takers, which they sometimes are. Um, but we do use that in term, you know, when, our, when our kids are being helpful or are being generous, we'll, we say, you often say, thank you for being a giver. Um, and you roll your eyes, yeah, yes, <laughs> appropriately. So you're not opposed to the concept of praising them with an identifier. You just would rather not use that. His identifier, right. <laughs> okay. <laughs> exactly. So, um, okay, wait. Let's circle back and talk about um, the process of writing this book as a couple, which I'm really fascinated by. <laughs> Like, my husband and I talk all the time about our various creative projects, but I can't imagine actually sitting down and doing one together. Like, that's a big thing. That might so, be the best. I don't know. <laughs> yeah, I, mean, I, 
I mean, I guess you guys did it all in one day. Did you really do it all in one day? or you just, The like, draft. The, the draft. draft. Yeah. But then yeah. what happened after that, and what was it like? Then it was awful. <laughs> <laughs> I, I liked it. I don't know. Uh, we, um, we, I mean, there, there were a lot of different pieces to it, right? So we, we wrote the draft, and then we did a bunch of editing, and then um, once uh, we submitted it to our publisher, um, we, we had this, uh, this actually, I thought, crazy experience of... When I wrote Give and Take, the opening character was uh, one of my favorite givers, David Hornick. And David is this venture capitalist who likes to help people and ask for nothing, and nobody could, around him could believe that he operated this way, including his family. Mm. And um, I'd been asked about him a lot over the years, spent a lot of time with him, and then um, when it came time to submit our book to a publisher, uh, our amazing agent, Richard Pine, who you... Uh, have worked with extensively. He is deeply said, amazing. Yeah, who said we should um, we should take this to Dial, um, and the person who runs this children's imprint is actually Lori Hornick, David's That's sister. So funny. I was sitting here thinking, can I? Is it okay to ask? Is he related to Lori Hornick? And then I thought maybe you're not supposed to do that. So, well, <laughs> apparently they're siblings. I'm glad you just um, said and that. And I, I just love the the symmetry of of saying, okay, you know, the adult book was sort of partially birthed through David, and now Lori has the children's book. And so wow. that was such an exciting experience for us to, yeah. to sort of continue working on this project with a family that lives these values. And um, then we had lots of, of dis- a bunch of decisions to make. I think the, the first big one was what the cover should look like. And I thought the idea Allison had was so cool for, for how this should work. So. Well, it was actually something we came up with in the car while, when we came up with the, the box idea, uh-huh. which was to try to make the book look like a box, right. like a package yeah. that the yeah. child could actually physically open. Yeah, as that if, is such a good idea. Right. As Are you visually book, oriented in general? I don't know. Uh-huh. <laughs> <laughs> but um, we wanted it to be um, a gift in and of itself. So mm-hmm. that was sort of how that came to be. Um, and then we had the opportunity to work with an amazing illustrator, Diana Schoenbrunn, mm-hmm. who just brought everything to life. Um, but yeah, it was... Um, an interesting experience, I think, working together. We have very different writing styles, and so that was sometimes um, difficult, I guess. <laughs> I, I don't know what you're talking about. It's never been difficult, ever. Um, I think, yeah, it's it, well, actually... Wait, okay, how, how are your writing styles different? Like, how did that manifest? So, Allison, can I, can I say... Yeah, okay, so... Um, I don't know what you're going to say. So, Allison wrote two novels before we met and no one's ever read them. Uh, she let me read two sentences of one once, and that's it. Like, no other lot human eyes have ever laid eyes on them. And um, so her, she approaches writing very much like a novelist would. Hmm. Um, she's also written a lot of poetry, and so wow. the, the language is colorful and yeah. beautiful and vivid. gripping. Yeah. And um, those of us who are social scientists at business schools tend <laughs> not to write that way as much. <laughs> and so I would take all of this elegant prose and kind of ask, well, how can I say that in the fewest words right. and the clearest sentences? Yeah. Right. And that would and you understandably like, drive her crazy. Yeah, you must have felt like, oh, that's taking all the color, yeah, exactly. flair life out of it. Right. So and he would have these utilitarian sentences that I would try to dress up. And uh-huh. so it, it didn't always go as planned in that sense. Yeah, but that was, I, I think that happened more in writing about the book than it did actually writing the book because we, we had a, a pretty similar idea for what we wanted a children's book to sound like because right. we, we liked a lot of the same books for our kids. Uh, so it was much more trying to figure out how to talk to adults about a kid's book oh, that's where really we, we found our voices clashing. Right. So, so how did you resolve it if you had different ideas about a specific paragraph or headline or whatever? 
Um, well, we started working separately. <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> um, well, there was a physical space issue too, because when we were working together, we would sit at Adam's desk together and both be on the same computer. Uh -huh. And that was very difficult because, well, it's hard for two people to work on one computer together. So um, eventually we started, we separated. And, yeah, I think um, if you're gonna write with your spouse, you should make sure you're separated by at least one floor yeah, in I the house. Yeah, I think that's a good. <laughs> oh, thank you. Um, and then one of us would do the first draft of whatever it is we were working on, the other would do the editing, and then we would send it back and forth, mm -hmm. and then we would usually come together at the end to tie it all up. That's right. sort of, right. I think, yeah. Are you going to do it again with another book? We did. We did it again, actually. Uh, we wrote a second children's book, which will come out next year. Wow. If all goes as planned. And can you give a sneak preview of what the topic is, or is that still under wraps? I don't know, actually. I don't Good know question. I think, I think what we could say is... <laughs> uh, we, we haven't asked that question. Um, what we could say is if you followed the arc of topics that, uh, that I've written about in my nonfiction adult work, mm -hmm. it's highly likely that our second children's book followed that pattern. Gotcha. <laughs> okay. <laughs> I'm going to ask you one more question, and then we have a whole bunch of questions from the audience. So uh, this other question I wanted to ask you, I wanted to talk about the different forms of generosity, because we tend to, like, we say the word generosity, what does it mean? We think it means maybe, you know, giving the shirt off your back or you know, making dinner for a family or someone sick, something like that. But there's also generosity of spirit. Um, and the other day I came across this teaching from the Sufi thinker, Hazrat Inayat Khan, and this is what he said. He said, it's not necessary that the spirit of generosity be shown always by the spending of money. In every little thing, one can show it. Generosity is an attitude a person shows in every little action that he does for people that he or she comes in contact with in everyday life. One can show generosity by a smile, by a kind glance, by a warm handshake by patting the younger soul on the shoulder as a mark of encouragement, of showing appreciation, of expressing affection. So um, I wondered what you thought of that, and like, do you think there is a difference between generosity and kindness, or are they really kind of the same thing? Well, I love that. I think it's really beautiful. It yeah, and, and I agree. I don't, I don't think generosity is um, just in the act of physically giving something. Mm -hmm. um, I, just before we came on, um, you patted my shoulder because I was nervous to come out here. And I mean, that in it itself is a wonderful act of generosity. And um, I think, I don't know, do you think? Yeah, I think, I, I have a couple of thoughts. So I, I definitely agree with the sentiment. I think for me, generosity is more about what you're contributing and mm. the difference it makes for the receiver, mm -hmm. whereas kindness is more about how you treat the person in the, in the process of, of trying to help them. Mm -hmm. um, I think that a lot of people confuse generosity with selflessness or sacrifice or altruism. Uh, and I think that's a mistake. Uh, I think people sometimes feel like they have to, they have to hurt in order to help someone else. Um, and the idea that you have to suffer in order to do sense. good is, mm -hmm. a, is a great way to burn yourself out. Yeah. Um, we, have a, we have a friend, actually, who, uh, who is one of the most generous people we know, and uh, I, I look at what he does, and I think I could never do that. Um, but I also would say you don't have to do that. Uh, an example that jumps out at me is uh, he invited a friend of his who's an adult 
uh, and has his own place to live, uh, to stay with him and his family. Mm -hmm. And then to stay there for months and months and months and just, like, you can stay as long as you want. I'm like, I, I would like our house, our house to ourselves, thank you very much. Yeah. Um, and I think that those kinds of acts, we associate that, that kind of extraordinary altruism with generosity and I don't think we need to, right? I think the, the small, what, um, what a colleague of mine would like to call five minute favors, mm -hmm. um, kind of the, the everyday little things that you do that show concern for others, that show that you want to benefit others, that, that to me is, is kind of the building block of, mm -hmm. of generosity and mm -hmm. I think we should all probably pay more attention to those acts than we do. Right, right. And that's, I think, also a great way to start teaching kids about generosity because mm -hmm. they can't go out there and buy a gift for somebody all the time yeah. or, you know, do yeah. something really big and grandiose, but those little gestures that add up and contribute to their character mm -hmm. as they grow. Mm -hmm. And Susan, before you go to the audience questions, I want to turn this around on you for a second. Sure. And say, I think that... Uh, you spent a lot of time doing work on helping introverted children recognize their strengths. Mm -hmm. It seems to me that listening and asking questions could be seen as an act of generosity. Uh, so can you talk to us a little bit about how you see that and also what you're doing with the Quiet Revolution in that arena? Oh, gosh. I mean, yeah, I think that, um, yeah, we can, we can make the mistake of assuming that acts of generosity are, are, you know, sort of big and grand gestures that might garner a lot of attention because they're done in a, a very outward way. But, but very often it's really just a, an act of quietly noticing that somebody is in pain or could use a helping hand or you have a chance to just share something amazing with them um, that is where the real power comes from between humans. And that's something that more quiet and more introverted children can do really easily um, and naturally, I would say. Um, yeah, and in terms of the work of the quiet revolution, it continues apace and um, uh, it's kind of been amazing. We're talking about children now, so it's been amazing to see how many schools and how many parents have been interested in really rethinking ideas of the ways in which they educate quieter children and the way, the way we view them really from the ground up. Um, and I think that's, a, that's probably the most important principle of all. Like, pe people will often ask me for advice um, of how to be a best parent to their shy child or their introverted child. And you know, we could talk about that for hours. There's so much to say. Um, but I think the most fundamental thing is a general principle of human nature, which is whatever you feel about your child or your colleague or your spouse or whomever, whatever you feel, it's gonna communicate itself regardless of what you say. It's just gonna, it will come out. And so you have to first really do your own inner work of thinking, do I see this child as a precious and magical being um, or am I focused on what are this child's difficulties going to be living in an extroverted culture? Not that you don't wanna think about those tactically, but they need to not be kind of the center of your experience with them. So. Thank you. Yeah, you're welcome. All right, back over to you. Okay, so we have many questions here. Um, oh, that's so funny. You can tell me if you feel you've answered this already, but how do you teach kids the difference between being kind and being generous? Hmm. I don't know that we've distinguished well. Actually, we, we sat down with our kids a few weeks ago and we had them write out their, uh, what they thought our family values should be. Wow. 
uh, which I thought was something. Was that, that their also, idea? Like, who, who's idea? <laughs> no, was that? no. I actually, um, I had, uh, I had <laughs> actually met a few people who had done this recently and said. Were they all business exercise. school professors? No. <laughs> no, actually, um, none of them were. Okay. And that was what made me more open to the idea. Uh, but they, uh, I had, I had uh, spent about a week abroad, and uh, a couple people had had raved about this experience. And they said, you know, it's it's really useful because once you know what your values are, you can use those to guide, you know, simple decisions like what should we do on our vacation, mm -hmm. um, but also much more complex decisions. And so, we we thought it would be an interesting exercise to sit down and um, have our kids generate what what they wanted the values to be and what they thought they were, so that both we would understand what they thought the principles were that we'd been trying to teach, and also so we could learn from what they actually wanted our, our principles to be. And so they, um, they generated a list. Uh, our daughters wrote them down. We kind of helped our son with writing them down. And um, a, lot of, like, a lot of synonyms showed up, right? So some version of generosity or helpfulness or kindness or compassion was on all their lists, mm -hmm. which was great. And so then we kind of grouped them together and said, all right, this is a value of, you know, of, of caring or kindness. And then here are a bunch of different ways you could express it. And we're not that concerned that, you know, that they focus on one or the other. We just want them to, to try to model the value. Mm -hmm. You were going to add something? I was going to say they each came up with their own list first, and then we discussed and, and were able to, um, I think we settled on six, six. values yeah. that we came up with that encompassed everybody's uh, opinions. I, yeah. I really had to work hard to resist the urge to do a factor analysis um, to try to look at the clusters of which words went together. <laughs> Uh, but we, we, we were able to see that there were, there were some clear patterns across the different, uh, the different lists, which was nice. And is this going up like on a family website or coat of arms or something? <laughs> coat of arms. That's it's fun. in our kitchen, I think. We have uh -huh. it posted in our kitchen and maybe in the family room. Yeah, I, I wow. kind of put a few copies in a few different rooms it. so that yeah. they might see them. But it's, it's been useful. We've um, we had a couple of moments where we can ask, you know, is like what you just said to your sister, is that consistent with our family values? Oh, yeah, that's good. And then they're like, um, <laughs> let's go look at the list again. Yeah. So. Um, okay, I need my glasses for this one. Okay, is there anything the research says about the notion of teaching kids to discuss what they failed at over what they did well each day? Oh, that's interesting. Mm. Yeah, I think, so, <laughs> yes, next question. Uh, yeah, I think my, my reading of the research on, on psychological safety and growth mindset is that, uh, that kids are often pressured, especially in the, the Western society that, that I think most of us are living in right now, um, to, to achieve excellence in everything they do. Yeah. And that if they feel that pressure, they're less likely to take risks, they're less likely to try things where they can learn something new, and they're le also less likely to be resilient after mm -hmm. they do make a mistake or fail. And so I think the, you know, what did you fail at? Uh, and then, you know, criticizing is not a good conversation. Right. Um, but a really helpful one is to say, let's, let's talk every week about something you failed at. And let's also share as parents something we failed at. Yeah. Uh, to, to say, look, this is, this is the only way we learn and grow. Uh, we, we, we kind of, we run experiments, right? We, we try things that we're not sure if they're going to work. Um, and then we, we come out of that saying, okay, well, what can I take away? And how can I do better next time? Uh, I think that's actually a conversation we haven't had enough, although uh, I feel like we've, we've read some books that were good on that. <laughs> Beautiful Oops is the one that comes to mind for anyone with young kids. Yeah. Oh, I don't know that one. Oh, it's, it's, it's very good. <laughs> um, I, didn't we mention this, um, weren't we talking about today, um, um, explaining, talking to our kids about why it's important to share times when we failed 
um, I can't remember if that was in the New York Times piece. Oh, no, we, we were talking about this earlier today. We haven't done it yet. Uh, but yeah, I think there's a, we, we were just writing about this in the, um, in the next piece about how uh, one of the things that, that we realize we don't do much, uh, this is all coming back to me now, we realize we don't, um, we don't let our kids see us engaging in helping and giving behaviors very much. Mm. So, you know, like I disappear to work and I spend some of that time trying to be helpful to people. Mm -hmm. And I realized our kids had no idea right, what I was doing. Right, yeah. right? And they're like, they, they know, they're like, okay, we, we know that you write books, um, but they, they wouldn't really be able to break down what else I was doing during my day. And so I started wanting to then share, okay, here's a student who came by office hours and here's the way that I, you know, I tried to help them solve their problem. And then I realized that every story I wanted to tell was a, su a success story, mm -hmm. right? Of, oh, here's you know, somebody who came in with a challenge and here's what I was able to help them figure out because I wanted to highlight how fun it is to be helpful. Mm -hmm. um, and at some point, I, I think I, I felt like I was only sharing success stories and that was the wrong message. And so mm -hmm. that, feel, that feels like something we need to pick up. Was that what you were thinking of? Yeah, we were talking about the times that we um, fail to be helpful and why we wish we would have done differently. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Um, yeah. I had such a, I had an interesting experience with my son with that, um, which is, I, I would say we stress kindness a lot in our family, and um, we were walking together in Manhattan one day, and we got home, and my son asked me afterwards, you know, you walked right past a homeless person who was asking for money, and you didn't do anything, and why is that? And he actually, he wasn't accusing about it, he was just like trying to figure it out. Mm. And I realized at that moment, I was like, you know, the reason, and, and I told him this, I was, I was sort of thinking out loud about it, and I said, you know, the reason is that when I was probably not much older than you, somebody told me um, you shouldn't give money because they'll probably use it for drugs or something like that. And, um, and now that I'm thinking about it, you know, maybe that's sometimes true, but maybe it really doesn't matter. And I think really that's an excuse that people are telling themselves a lot of the time. Um, to make themselves feel better and not have to feel the pain of the person that they're walking past as they go down the street. And so I think from now on, I'm going to start giving money. Um, and so now I do that, and sometimes I'll be walking down the streets of a foreign city if I'm on a business trip or something, and I'll have that kind of um, an, ex an encounter with someone, and I'll call him up and say, oh, this just happened because of that conversation we had. So I think there's something about like yeah. thinking all that through together as it's happening, because we're not all getting it right all the time. Yeah, I think- And the answers aren't always obvious. Yeah. Something we've, we've been talking about a bunch lately is times we both regretted not standing up for someone yeah. who's being picked on or, that's a or big bullied. One. And I, that, it's such a salient topic for kids. Such a big one. And I, I feel like that's, that's something we should probably be sharing a lot more with them than, than we have so far. Yeah. Um, okay, let's see. You talked about a focus on values over achievements with your children. How do you balance and coach your children in this ultra meritocratic society that our children are growing up in? Yeah. Well, I, we talked a little bit about um, at the dinner table about um, who did you help today and who helped you today. Um, that's, yeah, that's I don't know that we've put much focus on it. I, I was, uh, I was really surprised. There's some research that's come out in the last couple of years showing that if you survey kids on what they think their parents value <coughs> and you give them one list that's, that's achievement related, so um, getting into a good college, getting a good job, mm -hmm. um, 
having a, you know, a prestigious or successful career. And then the other set of values is more kindness-oriented around being helpful and compassionate and caring. Turned out that their ki the kids who think their parents value the, the generous values above the achievement values, they actually achieve more. Mm -hmm. uh, so they get better grades. Yeah, uh, they that. get higher standardized test scores. Yeah. And I don't think we have a good understanding of why this is yet. Uh, but I think some of it has to do with the fact that... Uh, Actual the, meaning. I, I think that's a huge part of it, right? That they're, they're being raised to think about what matters to them. Yeah. Um, and so instead of just feeling like they need to work for, you know, for an A, um, they think about the ways that, that mastering the material in a class could help prepare them for a career where they could help others, right? Which makes studying a lot more motivating. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Um, and I think there's also a sense of feeling supported and connected to other people in a way that, um, that puts a lot less pressure on kids and allows them to find their intrinsic motivation for, for what they think is worthwhile. Uh, so we, we haven't spent a lot of time on the achievement topic. It's actually something that we've disagreed with um, about when we've written these articles. Um, about what we want most for our children as mm -hmm. they grow. And um, I said that I most wanted our kids to be happy mm -hmm. as adults. Mm -hmm. And Adam was like, <laughs> screw happiness. <laughs> yeah. I, I want them to be generous. Right. So we're not quite there yet. Wait, 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 wait. You want them to be generous more than happy. Doesn't that contradict what you were saying before about Generosity doesn't have to involve self-sacrificing. No, of course. So of, yeah, I, I, how am I going to defend this against both of you now? <laughs> um, I, I, of course, I want them to uh, to pursue both. Mm -hmm. I think where I started thinking about this though is values. Values are supposed to be in a hierarchy, right? So it's not that helpful to have a list of ten values because then when you have a tough choice to make, you're like, well, I don't know which thing to do. Should I be um, should I be honest or should I be loyal? It's not clear. Um, if you know which values are more important, then, then values are actually a guide to resolve tough decisions. And that's the way that actually most of us use our values when, when we make choices. And so I was just thinking about the moments when there are trade-offs and thinking, okay, you know, if, if you take a zero to 10 sort of happiness range and if our kids reach an eight or a nine on happiness, I would rather have them then choose something that's helpful to others as opposed to moving up to a 10. Right, so I, I'd rather have kids who are, are caring and pretty happy than kids who are experiencing nirvana in a totally selfish way. Um, and that, that, was, that was kind of where I, I drew the line on that. Yeah. So tell, tell me why I'm you would disagree with that. I'm going to say respectfully, I'm really with Allison on this. I, I, I think that's a false dichotomy. Of course it is. Yeah. Um, so. this, is, this is what we do in psychology. We create, <laughs> we create two by twos, and then we argue about the cells that don't exist. But... <laughs> That's actually more a task for philosophers, I, I mean, now that I think about it. But True happiness would actually involve empathy and caring. Like, it wouldn't actually be pure happiness without that. So I guess it depends on how you define happiness. Yeah, maybe it does. But there was... I, uh, it, it, it sounded to me like you were defining it in a sort of selfish, hedonic way. Like, yeah. I'm getting my needs met, I'm getting new sneakers, and, right. you know, like that. Yeah, but there, I mean, there's a, there's a Jennifer Ocker et al. Uh, series of studies that showed that people who, who literally will say, I am a taker, in response to, to a survey, um, they experience more pleasure and joy day to day because they're constantly prioritizing what they want. Yeah, um, but that's that, pleasure. Yes, that's and that, of course, comes at the cost of meaning and some other more eudaimonic or Aristotelian ways of defining happiness. But I just, I think that at some level, the, yeah, I think, I guess I think, I, I was really persuaded by this book, uh, Obliquity, that John Kay wrote, uh, where he argued that the most important things in life can only be pursued indirectly, um, which then was followed up in another book that I liked a lot called Trying Not to Try uh, by Edward Slingerland, which made a very similar point. And the whole idea is that if you, if you focus too much on happiness, 
then you end up kind of obsessed with, with comparing yourself to other people and comparing what you wanted with what you got, and you're constantly wondering why you're not as happy as you wanted to be. And I just wanted happiness to be a little bit more of a byproduct of living a meaningful life and having good values, right? To say, okay, if you choose to be kind in ways that are meaningful to you, if you choose to help others in ways that you, know, that you might actually enjoy, then the hope is that that does breed a certain kind of happiness as opposed yeah. to being ha happiness being the goal. So Allison, that's what, what, I think you guys are having just a semantic we might disagreement. Do you, do you agree with but, what I just yeah, said? No, absolutely. I mean, generosity, I think, is a part of being happy. But if you were going to... If our kid was going to be a 10 on happiness and an 8 on generosity <laughs> versus a 10 on generosity and an 8 on happiness, I'd rather have the former. So, you know. Yeah, I'm not sure where I'd land on that, yeah. actually. Yeah, I would throw out the whole scoring system. <laughs> <laughs> you, you may not be alone on that. <laughs> but it's easier to talk about that. But I, but I will say, I think it, it may be that what is actually motivating this in you is a question that I actually meant to ask you before, which is... Um, you know, there are all these horrifying statistics about how much um, levels of empathy are falling. I just want to read, I actually gathered some of these this before the tonight. Sarah I wanted Conrath to read work. some of these to you. Yeah, um, but I think there were a couple of these studies. Hold on, let me see if I can find it. So I just want you guys to hear these statistics. They're crazy. Um, in one study, the average American college student in 2009 scored as less empathetic than 75% of students in 1979. And college students who hit campus after 2000 have empathy levels 40% lower than those who came before them. That was the UMICH study. So, like, what? What? what why? <laughs> yeah. And what does that have to do? I, that feels to me very yeah. intimately related with everything that you are writing about and thinking about. Yeah. So. So we have a, a piece that will come out in The Atlantic in about a month uh, that, that tries to unpack this a little bit and figure out what we can do about it. And I think the, the emphasis oh, wow. on achievement at the Can't expense wait. of all else um, is, is a big part of the story. We, we also think that, um, that some of the gender conversations that are going on right now might be uh, at least a, a factor. Because um, if you think about sort of what was going on in the late 70s, right, at least girls were being taught to be nurturing and caring. Um, and that was seen as, as part of sort of a female gender role. And I think now we have a movement where rightfully and importantly, girls are being encouraged to be ambitious and mm -hmm. strong and confident and competent. Um, and we are thrilled to see that. Um, what's interesting though is there's not a corresponding moment, movement to teach boys to be generous and helpful. And so I think we need that too, right? I think we need to throw gender stereotypes out the window and say, look, these are all virtues, right? Yeah. We need to teach everyone totally. um, to be ambitious and to be caring, and you don't have to necessarily choose between those two. And so I think what's happening is maybe across the board, there's just less attention to caring and kindness overall in parenting um, now that, you know, that, that neither sex is getting as much emphasis on it as, as before. Yeah. I don't know if, if you have anything No, to add. that's exactly what we, yeah, what we were speaking about. Right. Yeah. Okay, there's so much to talk about, but I'm also mindful that we want to have time for you to sign books and, um, and meet some of all of you. So let me just do one more question. Um, oh, this is really interesting. And I think you're going to relate to this. How do you handle an overly generous child? Oh. I look forward to having that I, problem. I, I, was, yeah, I, I, I such a child existed. Uh, um, well, I think this goes back to the self-sacrifice right. um, that we talked about with, right. with the giving tree and not giving so much of yourself that there's nothing left to give, um, which is a great lesson from that book. Yeah. 
Yeah, I think so too. I think, I mean, I guess I would, I would think about if we got into that conversation, some of the, it's some of the same questions that adults need to ask if, mm -hmm. if they're too generous, right? Yeah. Um, the first question is why are you operating this way? Yeah. Um, and it often comes out of, if you look at the research on what's called um, unmitigated communion, which is a horrible term, um, but it's, <laughs> it's basically caring about others at the expense or neglect of oneself. Mm. Um, that seems to come from either low or unstable self-esteem and a desire to be needed. Mm -hmm. um, and so, you know, I think it's, it's worth thinking about, okay, you know, why do you feel that you have to constantly do things for other people in order to be a person of worth? Mm -hmm. uh, and I think that, that would be one conversation worth having. I think the second would be to, to think about, okay, um, let's, let's make sure you're giving in ways that are actually not only beneficial to you, or excuse me, to others, but are also sustainable for you. Right. And so let's think about who you're helping, right? Are they draining you, or are they actually yeah. willing to pay it back or pay it forward? Um, let's think about when you're helping. Are you carving out time to, you know, to take care of your own needs and goals? Mm -hmm. um, and let's think about how you're helping. Are there, are there certain ways of, of helping other people that you really enjoy? and are good at, um, and are there, there are others that you just find exhausting or that you don't do especially well. Um, and I think you can have that conversation with, you know, with an eight or 10 year old yeah. just as easily as, uh, as I have it often with 20 and 30 and 60 year olds. Right, right. Yeah, so I think what you're really saying um, underneath it all is to find out what is the motive for the child being so overly generous. And if it's truly a motive of, it brings me pure joy to be giving things away, okay. Um, but very often there's some other motive of, uh, that has to do with some kind of an insecurity and to find out what that is. Yeah. I think so. Yeah. And um, we, have, we actually have some friends who live in Philly and came here to New York tonight just to support us, which we thought was wow. overly generous. Wow. Um, and now we're gonna have to quiz them later about whether they've crossed the line <laughs> into, into self-sacrifice, but I think they might be making a vacation out of it too, so we're gonna try not to feel oh, guilty. Yeah. Um, but Susan, I, um, I, I just want to say it's, um, it's really kind of you to, to take time out of your evening to come and do this um, and share your wisdom and also ask us questions. And I'm especially thrilled that you and Allison finally got to meet. Yeah, me too. I mean, I'm one of your biggest fans and I, I am so happy that we finally got to meet in person. And so let this not be the last time. Absolutely. Thank yeah. you so much. Thank you so much. And can everybody give a big round? Thanks for listening. 92i Talks is supported by a generous endowment established by Daphne Reconati Kaplan and Thomas S. Kaplan. You can subscribe to our podcast on iTunes and find more great conversations at 92iondemand.org.